Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my colleague, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. How are you? Not too bad. I'm glad the rain is finally going to come to Vancouver. Yeah, but, you know, actually, on the topic of driving law, the the rain that we need right now to get out of the drought that we are in is like another atmospheric river. Well, we don't need that. <laughs> we but certainly we do, don't need we that, do. but we need a lot of Environmentally, rain. we need that level of rain. We need solid, solid winter rain for a long time. And it looks like, I mean, the, the weather forecast on my phone, at least, looks like we're going to have days and days and days of rain. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, fewer um, speed traps when it's raining out. So that, yep. you know, cuts into our business a little bit because we do defend traffic tickets. <laughs> um, and... Um, uh, but more uh, accidents and more, consequently, hit and, I, hit and runs and ICBC cases, um, which is not our bread and butter, but it's uh, you know it's a driving law thing. Yes. Um, before we talk about ICBC cases, because I actually have a really interesting case for us to discuss that involves ICBC litigation, but not in any of the ways you're probably thinking. Um, What I thought that we would talk about very briefly was maybe you would hype my recent TikTok successes. Okay, so (laughs) Kyla posted a TikTok a few days ago and then she messaged me after it had been up for about 15 minutes and said, uh, this thing has had 15,000 views in 15 minutes. And last I checked, it was uh, over well over 500,000 views. And it was in explaining what to do in a traffic stop. And I've been wondering why it was such a popular TikTok. And there's lots of good reasons. And people, if you read the comments, it's really, you know, you can see the reasons that people appreciated it and have shared it. Uh, one is that it's uh, several minutes long and Kyla does it without any notes and without taking any breaks, and remarkably quickly, and it is very precise and accurate. And, the well, there's a bunch of police officers, including police officers with 30 years uh, of uh, policing recently retired who are on there saying, wow, this is 100% correct. Thank you for this. It's just amazing. It is the best explanation of it. And if you go to the Vancouver Criminal Law uh, Twitter page, you'll find our currently... Um, uh, highlighted tweet at the top is the same topic, but it's not nearly as clear as your TikTok. Your TikTok just explains it so well. But a lot of people were also commenting about the shirt you were wearing. And so I think between <laughs> oh, yeah. the content the shirt that and I the bought shirt, at a DUIDLA conference. There, well, there you go. So it's got a, so another it's a, driving it's connection. It's a driving law but shirt. the shirt that you were wearing and the content, I think, is what made it go viral. And um, it was fascinating. And also interesting was the, um, was the questions that arose. So every time you think you've answered every question that you could possibly answer, somebody else has another uh, answer. And then the other interesting thing, to me at least, is the number of times men get on there in their comments and try to mansplain about something that they think that you've got wrong. Mm-hmm. You were just, I mean, it, it was such an amazing TikTok. Get out there and watch it. There's two follow-up ones that Kyla's done since, um, and uh, one that might refer to our ridiculous driver of the week. Uh, but uh, it was uh, just an amazing TikTok. So it's Kyla Lee Lawyer on TikTok. 
yeah, so check out my TikTok um, if you like the podcast. And if you uh, are on TikTok and you want to write a comment to tell people to listen to the podcast for more information on driving law issues, that'd be great because there's only so much you can stick into a TikTok video before people stop paying Well, that was the other thing. You're, you're finishing the TikTok. It could be the, your sign-off line there was like, stay out of trouble or something like that. Well, people and, should stay uh, out of trouble. Well, I know they should, but I just the uh, the manner in which you delivered it, you know, you've got content, 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 and then you were done, and you were at a loss because your brain is so filled with content. Uh, you were at a All loss right. for what you were going to say, it seemed. And stay so out of you, trouble. <laughs> you wrapped it up with stay out of trouble. Uh, I was like, yeah, okay, for fair any, enough. For <laughs> anyone listening to the podcast who's been a client of mine that's attended court with me, you know that uh, my standard line after the court appearance is over and everything works the way it's supposed to is, um, you know, I hope to never see you again. <laughs> I never say that to them. I usually well, say, "I'm." Uh, it's nice to meet you. I'm glad we got through this. And, uh, you know, you probably never need me again. Uh, but if you do, you can call me. But I'd appreciate it if you send your friends to me when they need me. Yeah. And that's uh, that's about it. Okay. So... Moving into this ICBC case, very interesting issue here. We have a judicial review that is brought um, before Madame Justice Ahmad, who is somebody very well-versed in admin law, so a good um, judge for this issue. And the case is actually brought by a lawyer by the name of Martin Nagalem. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, Martin Nagalem used to work for ICBC. His employment at ICBC ended. It's not clear in the decision why he was no longer employed at ICBC, but he ceased to be employed at ICBC. He got hired after ceasing to be employed at ICBC at a private law firm in Vancouver, and the purpose of him being hired was effectively that he would work um, in in dealing with actions, defending people in ICBC cases. So he would essentially be the lawyer for ICBC insurance defense. So ICBC is in the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, for anybody who's not uh, from BC listening. And ICBC has a monopoly on basic car insurance. And ICBC has their own in-house lawyers, and they deal with things in their own in-house lawyers. And they also contract things out. And contracting things out is kind of like legal aid in a sense. Like you, you, you apply to become. They, they had to make sure that it wasn't some gift to law firms. Right. So they came up with a, a structure. Um, so it's not political, and it's not <laughs> where where firms can get this work. Yeah. So he tries to get hired or get on the roster of lawyers, kind of like you get on the legal aid roster for ICBC, but ICBC says, nope, we are not going to give you a billing number. Now, the effect of this is that he cannot work defending claims for ICBC. The purpose for which he was hired at this law firm in Vancouver. And presumably they hired him there because they because knew that the ICBC his, ex- his experience that he had. What he could bring, the connections, right? Well, the, the, yeah, the connections and the knowledge about their what they're looking for. And they're, you know, in any event, made a lot of sense, you would think, to hire him in that circumstance yep. with the expectation that this is he's going to get this number and be able to accept these files. Yep. So 
obviously he's concerned because now he's lost earning capacity. And he claim, files a claim uh, at common law and pursuant to t- section 24.1 of the charter, alleging that ICBC breached his uh, charter rights under section 6.2b, charter sections we don't really talk about very often, and section 7. So 6 is your right to pursue a livelihood in any province. Yes. And seven is his uh, his right to work as a lawyer. And seven is his right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Seems a stretch. Fascinating. The second one. Fascinating. Yeah. He wasn't self-represented, I hope. No, he had, uh, he had uh, a lawyer um, representing him. Um, and he was seeking compensation as a result of this but brought it as a petition proceeding in BC Supreme Court. So even though he's really making a charter claim for civil damages arising under Section 24.1 of the Charter, he brings the proceeding by way of petition rather than notice of civil claim, which you would typically do if you're making a claim for charter damages, and as a judicial review, essentially saying that ICBC failed to consider in exercising its discretion not to grant him a billing number, his charter rights, and thus the decision was unreasonable, that it was demonstrably unreasonable because of the failure to consider charter values in the approach. Well, it's interesting because it's a government decision, right? And government decisions are generally reviewable. And and subject to judicial review, yes, generally. Yeah, Charter issues in judicial review are a lot more complicated because, first of all, you have have questions about whether or not a statutory body is a statutory body that is capable of granting a charter remedy, whether or not a statutory body is bound by the charter because, well, there may be charter values, certain aspects of the charter may not apply to the statutory body. We see this argued a lot in the context of roadside prohibitions in BC, but more significantly litigated and and quite well developed in the law of roadside prohibitions in Alberta. And actually, aside for an update for people who are wondering, um, Alberta's roadside prohibition scheme is far more fair than BC's, it seems, because about 75% of prohibitions are being overturned, mostly on charter breaches. Yeah, fascinating, because Mm -hmm. they don't give charter remedies generally in BC. But they're much more sort of willing to accept that your charter rights were violated and the evidence was unfairly obtained in Alberta. So, the big question that arises in this sort of case involving Mr. Nagalem is whether or not he can actually even bring a petition for this issue, whether this should be a civil claim. And ICBC took the position that the claim was bound to fail because the issues raised in the petition were not properly the subject of judicial review. First, because their decision to issue a billing number is not a statutory decision, but rather a private law matter, a contractual relationship between two private parties. And secondly, and thus not subject to judicial review because judicial review only concerns public law. And secondly, you can't grant damages on judicial review. Yeah. I just think like if you are a, um, 
a bidder on a government contract, a project, for example, and they put it out for tender, mm-hmm. and you submit your your proposal to them, it's not a judicial review because it's a private, basically a private business arrangement. Mm-hmm. It's the government making a decision, but not reviewable. Well, I'm curious how the court viewed it. <laughs> yeah. So because I, you're, you're telling me, I'm, I'm learning it, by the way, listeners, as we're yeah. going here. So uh, ICBC also argued that charter claims are not properly brought by way of petition, and so that should be struck on that basis. Um, that uh, and Mr. Nagalem said, well, ICBC's legal work is a public law matter because it is of significance to lawyers in British Columbia. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's an interesting angle. I don't yeah. think that I don't think that negates my earlier point. ICBC's decision is analogous to an industry regulator um, because they have a monopoly here. They essentially regulate the well, industry. It's a government monopoly regulating industry. Okay, all right. This, this, I'm starting to buy into this argument. Keep going. And he argued that the decision had a public character as a result, which made it properly the subject of review. And he said, as far as his charter claims and his, you know, seeking damages for lost income, uh, the proper remedy for the court would be to convert his petition into a civil, uh, a civil action, which has happened in cases. Yeah. So the court gets into the question of whether or not the claims are properly the subject of judicial review. And essentially, two requirements have to be met. The first, there must be an exercise of state authority. And secondly, the exercise must be of sufficiently public character. Now, as far as state authority, the court notes, of course, that ICBC is a statutory body. Its functions include the operation and administration of insurance plans, universal compulsory insurance in the province. ICBC is authorized under the Act to do all things necessary or required for the purposes of carrying this out, including... Um, doing anything necessary to settle, adjust, investigate, defend, and otherwise deal with claims. Section 74 of the Insurance Vehicle Regulation establishes their duty to defend an action if brought on behalf uh, or brought against an insured person. But there's nothing in the Act or the regulations that expressly contemplates the issuance of a billing number. So it's one thing to say. They have the statutory authority to do what's necessary to defend claims, like hire counsel mm-hmm. or appoint counsel. But issuing a billing number was what was at issue here. That was the decision. We're not appointing you as counsel by essentially by not issuing you a billing number so you can't bill us. But isn't that just the de facto decision? Yes. Well, that's, um, that's what the court concludes. It's that, essentially, it's a de facto decision to not appoint him as counsel. And in the technical sense, it was an exercise of state authority. But it's not just that the state is exercising powers, but also that the exercise of those powers has to be something that's central to the administrative mandate. And so the court looks at whether or not appointing counsel is central to the administrative mandate and says, essentially, it's, it's not. Uh, they say, in this case, um, uh, ICBC has been mandated with the operation and administration of plans of insurance, including universal compulsory vehicle insurance in the province. While the legislation grants the power to appoint and instruct counsel, the power is ancillary 
to its function as the administrator. It cannot be said that ICBC's appointment and instruction of counsel is central to the function or mandate given to it by the legislature. So essentially, their function is make insurance compulsory and universal. And and provide, sell and, and provide insurance. Administer it. And administer it. In order to do that, they may have to appoint counsel. But that's an ancillary duty that they have. Okay, fair enough. So she rejects it first on that basis. But then she says, I'm going to go one step further. If I'm wrong on this, I think it's also not a public character. And I think that's where his argument was weakest. Frankly, I'm, you know, I can see the, because there's express references in the statute to defending claims, I could see an argument that she got it wrong there in the sense that it is central to the mandate because it's expressly set out in statute. Yeah. But how is it public to say, well, this affects lawyers? Yeah. You know what? There's all sorts of decisions that are made that affect chefs well, that, that are, and carpenters. That, yeah. Spinning it that way, <laughs> I, I think I think you could have said that it's public in different manners, but saying, using that argument saying that it, it affects lawyers and therefore it's public, I don't think yeah. it's going to fly. So and maybe they conceived of it differently when they started, and you know sometimes that happens, right? You come across out with an argument, and it makes very great sense to you, and you draft your pleadings and put it in, and then, and then you start thinking about it from another angle, and you, that other angle sort of takes over. Well, I think the conception of it was wrong in the beginning, and I, I part of me thinks that this was like a half cocked idea that if we sue ICBC, they'll just relent and give me a, a billing number. Yeah, but they could have folded their tent long before. And, and I mean, I don't think it's completely wrong. I mean, we, we can see that this is a, a quasi-judicial decision. It's just that it's not a public decision. It's basically a, a contract decision between government and a, and a supplier of services. Yes. So what determines whether a decision is in, uh, in the sufficiently public character that attracts judicial review. One, the character of the matter, the nature of the decision maker and its responsibilities, the extent to which a decision is founded in and shaped by law as opposed to private discretion, the body's relationship to other statutory schemes or other parts of government, the extent to which a decision maker is an agent of government or is directed, controlled, or influenced by a public entity, the suitability of public law remedies, the existence of a compulsory power and an exceptional category where conduct has attained a serious public dimension. None of those, like just on their face, none of those fit this decision. Like this is akin to essentially somebody filing a judicial review against a private company that chose not to hire them. Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, car insurance is not a central government no nope. it's not a central government focus there may be things that we consider a central government focus in canada you know where we are mandated to have health care for example but there's no accepted mandate to have a government provide car insurance it's just the government decided to collectivize car insurance and we have socialist car insurance in bc it's still just a business of car insurance I thought it was very interesting Mr. Nagalem brought an argument. He said that ICBC giving him a billing number would not create a contractual relationship between him and ICBC 
even though he would be ICBC's lawyer for the purposes of defending these claims, be it an employment relationship or otherwise. Rather, as the law firm applied for the billing number, any contractual relationship would be between ICBC and the law firm. There's a fundamental logical flaw with that argument. If he's saying, well, not giving me a billing number is is not creating a contractual relationship because it's actually the law firm that was denied the billing number, he undermines his own argument that he would even have standing, standing. to bring the judicial review. Mm. So the, the court doesn't accept this argument anyway and says, no, it's, it's, a, it's a completely private law issue. And then the court goes one step further and says, now for these charter remedies that you're trying to seek um, for interference in your ability to pursue a livelihood and your right to life, liberty, and security of the person, should I convert this into a civil claim? And uh, the court uh, looks at the case of the redeemed Christian Church of God and New Westminster, which was a case about the city of New Westminster not renting space to a church that was preaching anti-LGBTQ values. And uh, the judge in that case found the decision, the contractual decision, was not the subject of judicial review, but concluded that the claim for charter relief was properly brought by way of petition and granted declaratory relief on the charter breaches. The city appealed. The Court of Appeal frames the issue, saying whether a party who seeks charter relief in circumstances where the JRPA is not engaged can do so by way of petition. And the court concluded that it could not. It cannot be brought as a petition proceeding if the JRPA is not engaged. Uh, It held that in the absence of a properly brought judicial review, charter proceedings must be started by filing a notice of civil claim. And uh, the court dismissed the petition without prejudice to the right to commence an action. And the court, in Mr. Nagalem's case, dismissed the petition and uh, essentially said that that's without prejudice to his right to commence an action seeking charter relief. So he can still sue for charter relief. He and he can, can probably still. he can probably still sue in contract law. Um, if there's an if there's a cause of action there, but there's not. Like, well, what is what? How is it interfering with your mobility rights? In no, the no. Province? I don't think the charter argument. I don't think he's got a charter argument. I, I mean, I'm just saying he could do it, but he might have a contract. He might have a contract argument. There might be something to do with the application. That's you know, a potential breach of contract issue. The court is saying he can still sue. Is the point, despite the fact that he's lost here with his petition. If he is willing to proceed with a notice of civil claim and do it that way, he can still do it. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a very strange thing. Uh, interesting for you because you do so many of these uh, petitions for things, but I often talk to uh, clients about all of these different potential reviewable decisions that ICBC makes. I mean, you go into ICBC, they're not likely to refuse you a license in an arbitrary manner. But if they did, obviously, that would be something that you could 
you know, well, file a petition and, and seek a judicial review. There are cases like the guy who wants to wear the colander on his head in his license photo. That's a judicial review. He keeps losing because the courts don't accept that he has legitimately held beliefs about the flying spaghetti monster, and instead he's basically just a religious troll. I know yeah. you and I yeah. differ on this. Yeah, no. We've I, talked about it on the podcast. I, I, I know your argument. I see your argument. And I find I'm trolling you when I make the other argument. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't think that the court should be venturing into that legitimizing or delegitimizing what somebody claims is a religion. However, um, but yeah, that is the process where you would do it as a judicial review. Um, and it's not contractual, and it's part of the uh, the government's obligation to to provide that. But here we are, um, all of these things that uh, you deal with that are judicial reviews all the time, and uh, people trying to stretch the judicial review um, stretch the judicial review uh, pant size to make them <laughs> to make them fit, and uh, they don't fit in these circumstances. Nope. So, there you go. Um, that's one case, but it took most of our podcast because it's so interesting. This is a driving law case. A lawyer that wants to represent people in driving law issues, and instead we get, like, a fascinating discussion on the interplay between charter remedies, judicial review, public bodies making statutory decisions that actually amount to private law matters. Super cool. I love the way driving law drives the law. 100%. And now, brought to you by a surprising bestseller, the pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we kind of teased this earlier that our ridiculous driver of the week was also on my TikTok. Uh, this is a person in California who was arrested for DUI on horseback. Now I've discussed this so many times over the years. So that the the development of impaired driving, there was no. Um, Concern with impaired driving when people were on a single horse. Uh, and the reason for that was the horse has a brain of their own and the horse is not usually going to do something stupid. Yeah. And people were just generally accepted that if you got drunk, you could get on your horse and go home. Yeah. Now, when there was a horse and wagon, um, you know, there was potential for injury and um, there we was some... talked about some, some Amish kids who got DUIs. Well, sure. And there was, you know, if you go back to, to horse and buggy cases, um, you will find horse and buggy criminal cases where there's investigations for people, you know, committing a criminal offense basically by being so negligent in their horse and buggy. Um, I did look at this at one point, but really nothing developed from it. When cars came out, of course, you know, you're accelerating uh, cars like a big lever uh, mm-hmm. and you're um, uh, behind the wheel of a machine that can do a lot of damage and it doesn't have the extra brain that a horse has. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we haven't really had to worry about people on horseback. And in Canada, well, you're not going to get a impaired driving charge from riding on a horseback, but this person in California did. Yes. So in Canada, you couldn't get a DUI for riding a horse because 
It's not a conveyance or a motor vehicle. You could get it in a motorized wheelchair, as we talked about with Ben Dooley one time, and he agrees with it. Um, we, you can get it in a pool noodle, as we've talked about, a canoe. One of these electric skateboards, for sure. A yeah, we talked about the pool noodle previous times. That's a vessel. Um, the, um, there's a lot of things you could get it on. You could have one of these motorized coolers that you see uh, were popular for a while on YouTube. Guys with their beer cooler that had a motor and you sat on the cooler and had a little stick to be able to control it. I think the uh, motorized cooler is a wonderful thing and I, I don't think you should ever be able to get an impaired on one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, you, uh, all of those things uh, are a conveyance. Uh, they're a motor that's meant as a vehicle. Uh, a horse is not a vehicle. Yeah. A horse is not a vessel. A horse is not an airplane. A horse is not a train. A horse is not a boat. Planes, trains, automobiles, but not your horsies. Yep. So if you get drunk, ride your horse. Well, uh, <laughs> the... Uh, Save your car, ride a horse. <laughs> I would be really surprised that uh, if you caused any injury on your horse... Um, but it is possible that, you know, you could ride out into the road and somebody might have to swerve to miss you and you could be at fault for that. And you may be absolutely negligent you could be liable and you civilly. could be sued and you probably would not, you know, your car insurance is not going to extend to it uh, if you're drunk or uh, if you're on your horse, probably. I don't think your car insurance is going to protect you on your horse. So I would say don't get drunk and ride your horse. Uh, because although you are probably not committing a criminal offense, although there could be criminal negligence, um, the uh, the insurance consequences or the injury you could cause people, personal injury consequences, yeah, or the in, personal yeah, liability, yeah, your liability that you're facing could be huge. Hope you have a good home insurance policy. <laughs> uh, but uh, of course, if you ride in the field, you're pretty safe. Yeah. So I would discourage it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's unlikely we will see it happen. Um, I. I don't see it as being criminal in the impaired driving context. Yes. And if you got a DUI or other sort of criminal charge while on your horse, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. Driving Law.